Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Holwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode, once again, we're continuing our journey into H.P. Lovecraft's classic weird tale, The Whisperer in Darkness. Before we get into all that good journeying, however, what is going on? Well, we have our blasphemous tome, our fanzine, coming out very soon. And Scott, you've been writing some reviews to feature in it, I believe. Yes, I've written an extensive article about the paperbacks from Hell line. So for people who might not have heard of this, a few years back, there's a, a horror author called Grady Hendrix who put out a book called Paperbacks from Hell. And this was a look back at all the weird horror paperback originals that were published in the 70s and 80s, primarily the 80s. These often very lurid, just strange books with fantastic covers. And the book is pretty much a coffee table book with lots of pictures of the covers, as well as synopses and capsule reviews of the books themselves. But what this led to was a reprint line that Valancourt Books, who do a lot of fantastic stuff anyway, a lot of reprints of classic books, particularly horror novels from years gone by, they decided to do a branded line called Paperbacks from Hell, taking a lot of the choicer entries from Hendrix's book and bring them back into print where possible, because in, in a lot of cases, these were books that have been out of print for like 30, 40 years. And particularly once paperbacks from hell inspired interest in them, were going for really stupid amounts of money. So they have bought the rights to as many of these as they can, and they're putting out one every few months at least, or generally about once a month. And there are some fantastic books in the line, some really shitty ones as well, but interestingly shitty ones. And so I've, <laughs> I've taken, I think, seven or eight of them and written capsule reviews plus an overview of the line there. Cool. And anybody who wants a copy of the Blasphemous Tome fanzine printed and delivered to their door... If you want to back us by the end of 2020, you will receive a copy. And Matt, you've been up to stuff as well, haven't you? You did a panel recently, I believe. This is a little while ago now, but it's still floating around out there on the mysterious platform that is Facebook. The Miskatonic Repository Convention was held online. It was held on a Discord server. They had various games that were running for creators that had put together scenarios that are published on the repository. And also a few panels with various guests who'd worked on either projects on the repository or had got some insights that would be useful to those out there that are looking to put their stuff on the platform. And yeah, I was on a panel with Mike Mason, John Hook, Oscar Rios and myself uh, talking about writing scenarios and just writing in general for the repository. Nice. So what kinds of stuff did you cover in the discussion? I don't know how we put scenarios together, our own writing styles, our process of developing scenarios and writing for publication experiences we've had, that kind of thing. So that was a good few useful nuggets of info there from all concerned. Excellent. Then I shall put a link to that in the show notes. And one last minute bit of news to sneak in. Those of you who are active on our Discord server might know that people have started doing story readings on there. There is a voice channel called The Bar, and a few of our wonderful listeners have started what they refer to as the House of Apprehension, where they read classic works of weird fiction, and in one case, a piece of original weird fiction. Well, for Christmas, there is something extra special coming your way there. Mike Percival Maxwell, better known to those of you on the Discord server as Mr. Spike, has organised a reading of A Christmas Carol, Charles Dickens's classic story of the season, complete with lots of spooky ghosts. He is assisted in this reading by a number of special guests, including Dominic Allen, Rena Hansey, uh, Paul Fricker and myself. And between us we will be voicing the various characters. 
These readings will begin on Monday the 14th of December at 10pm GMT and continue for the following four days. So that's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday of that week, the week before Christmas. Each reading will be about half an hour. We're using an abridged version of A Christmas Carol, abridged by Mr Dickens himself for his own readings, so we hope that suits. So if you would like to join us and listen to this, you can do so live by joining us on the Discord server and simply listening to the bar channel when that goes on. I have put a link to the Discord server in our show notes. Alternatively, we do plan to record these. Obviously, stuff may happen between now and then, but our plan at the moment is certainly to record these and make them available somehow after the event. We shall post more information as it becomes available. So, yes, Merry Christmas, everyone, and we hope you can join us. And now on to our main topic, The Whisperer in Darkness... Chapter 6 We've now delved quite heavily into the story, and we've reached, I think, something of a turning point. Our protagonist, Albert Wilbarth, is now heading off to Vermont to meet his friend, his correspondent, Henry Akeley. And I'm sure everything will get resolved and only good things will happen from now on. A few days later, Wilmarth packs up the hideous phonograph record, the Kodak prints, and the entire file of Akeley's correspondence, and heads off to Vermont. The train journey is scenic, giving Wilmarth the opportunity to mentally rail against modernity and foreigners. <laughs> when the conductor tells Wilmarth to set his clock back an hour to Vermont time, he feels he is likewise turning the calendar back a century. Oh, howie. Yeah, back in the first episode of this run, we did talk a little bit about Lovecraft's essay on Vermont, and he did lift bits of it, not just for this bit, but also for some of the stuff that follows in this chapter where Wilmarth is actually travelling through Vermont. But yes, this whole thing about how it represents some glorious lost past and the rural life is so much better and so on, yeah, is very much lifted from his essay. Yeah, it's something I can understand. I mean, mm. when you're in more cosmopolitan places, the world and the speed of life is very different. Mm. And then even in Britain, if you go to the more rural areas, particularly if you get far enough away from London, places have a different feel, you know, or big cities particularly, but I think particularly London. So if you go to the coast or you go to more remote places, yeah, it's not necessarily in a negative way, but the speed of life, you know, does, does feel different. Oh, yeah, and the people. Yeah, attitudes and so on. My parents used to live in the middle of nowhere in the Scottish borders, surrounded by farmhouses and a tiny little village that didn't even have a shop in it. And, yeah, it felt very different. I mean, there was a reasonable-sized town a few miles up the road, but the community they were in was just very, very rural and just like you say, the whole pace of life, it felt utterly different from anything else I've ever experienced when I visited. But if I may, there's a few paragraphs of text here where Lovecraft describes Wilmarth's journey through the hills. Mm. And I think they're just some of Lovecraft's better writing. They really, really paints a lovely picture. I mean, they're, they're quite long. But there's a sentence here. He says, after that, we cast off all allegiance to the immediate tangible and time-touched things and entered a fantastic world of hushed unreality in which the narrow ribbon-like road rose and fell and curved with an almost sentient and purposeful caprice amidst the tenantless green peaks and half-deserted valleys. He really kind of mm. paints a very poetic kind of vision of, of going into this land where there's very few people the hills rise wild, to quote another of his stories, and you are kind of going into this place where things are different. People are, have different ways here. <laughs> Instead of Akeley, Wilmarth finds Mr. Noise, a younger and more urban person waiting for him at the station. The man's cultivated voice holds an odd and almost disturbing hint of vague familiarity. Again, not one of those alarm bells ringing here whatsoever. 
I, this is resolved fairly quickly, but this is definitely one of these points of dramatic irony where we as readers know a hell of a lot more about what's going on than the characters do. Noise explains that Akeley has had an attack of asthma and is now an invalid. As the two drive to the farm, Wilmoth notes a number of locations that he recognises from both his research and the correspondence with Akeley. And Noise, at the same time, provides a sort of running narrative filling in details of life in the area and some of the things they're looking at. Yes, I've got a couple of quick observations about Noise. The narrator says, I felt I should go mad if I recognised mm. it, referring to Noise's voice. So again, there's this thing of like sanity rolls in here, like we see in Call of Cthulhu, of putting the pieces together and suddenly, bam. And also, Noise spelled an N-O-Y-E-S. Am I the only person to look at that and think it's written no yes? <laughs> Which is kind of, you know, total conflict. Yeah. I just wonder if Lovecraft chose that. It is a regular name, Noise. Yeah. But it's fairly unusual. And just the compound of those two words just seems to fit in a curious way. <laughs> yeah. And we will certainly come back to the topic of Mr. Noise, I think, if not in this episode, certainly in the subsequent one. And yeah, I think there are some interesting questions hanging over who exactly he is and what his role in all this is. Once they arrive, Noise asks Wilmarth to wait outside while he checks on Akeley. Wilmarth is unnerved to be in the place where so many strange things have happened. This is only made worse when he realises that he cannot see or hear any sign of Akeley's dogs. You see, between deliveries, he's killed the last 20 of them, so he needs to wait for the next truckload to turn up. <laughs> As Wilmarth looks around, he spies something that makes him even less happy. Here, indeed, in objective form before my own eyes, and surely made not many hours ago, were at least three marks which stood out blasphemously among the surprising plethora of blurred footprints leading to and from the Akeley farmhouse. They were the hellish tracks of the living fungi from Yoggoth. And here we see the phrase, the fungi from Yoggoth. Now, only a month before, Lovecraft had written his poem cycle, his sonnet cycle, The Fungi from Yoggoth. So I don't know whether he had that as a title in or rather a name in mind for these creatures before he wrote that poem cycle or whether they sort of planted the idea for some of the elements that he brought into this story i think it's more just the name i think that it's a bit like his mm. note for azathoth in his commonplace book that says yeah or hideous name i think he just liked the sound of it because there's very little correlation between the Migo as described here mm. in the story as there is in the descriptors in the sonnet cycle fading it almost paints yogoth as like a a fantasy environment for where these black spires and funnels and smoke bodies are piled and it's a very kind of grim dark fantasy landscape rather than being this science fiction tone that is set up here certainly no crustaceans flying around anyway and then again later on in this story he does describe yogoth a little bit and talks about these black bridges with rivers of pitch flowing underneath and strange architecture mm. and stuff like that and so it does perhaps correspond mm. But, yeah, I agree that I don't remember. It's been a very long time since I read the poem, but I don't remember there being any mention of the Migo, these creatures, in the poem side. Yeah, they're not. Gogoth itself is mentioned, I believe it's either in the second or third of the sonnets. And even then, as I said, it's more that there's this kind of body lying on a slab set up as a ritual offering, and it has this more primeval fantasy feel to it rather mm. than having a Mego presence. And there is the reference of what fungi sprout in Yogoth later in the sonnet cycle. But again, it's more that's just vegetation or wildlife. It's not describing them as big shiny heads that glow different colours, wings, crab-like. No, none, none of that is in the sonnet cycle. So this is Lovecraft again, reusing words, reusing phrases, using names to mean different things. And yeah, as I've said so many times in the podcast before, I think this is something we can have a great deal of fun with ourselves in our games. 
So Wilmarth's bent over looking at this strange print in the ground and noise reappears, tells him that Aclear is ready to receive him now. Quite why he had to go in in advance, I'm not sure, but he warns him, however, that Aclear's attack of asthma will prevent him from being a very competent host for a day or two. Hmm. The whole thing about being bedridden kind of suits there. <laughs> hmm. Now, one thing Noyce did do, which we didn't mention there, was that he also took Wilbarth's suitcase in. And so perhaps there was an element of, oh, yeah, let's get all the evidence that he's carrying with him and just separate him from that before we get into anything too much. I'm almost having flashbacks to, this is going back away now, to the uh, game of Elves that we played. <laughs> is it a Vincent Baker game? I can't remember who wrote it now. No, it was Ron Edwards. It's called Elves with an F, because part of the conceit of the game is that elves are too stupid to actually know how to pluralise their own <laughs> names. You think you're taking modules and putting that somewhat sarcastic spin on some of the description. You could almost envision noise coming back out and saying, right, I've taken all the shit out of your suitcase now, so all the evidence is gone. You can come in for your uh, meeting with the guy in the skin suit now. <laughs> yeah, that would lend itself to a very particular kind of game, Matt. <laughs> Maybe not the kind of tobe we're going for, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I'm pretty sure that Wilmarth would just be oblivious to all the uh, all the comments anyway. So Wilmarth enters the house and he uh, he recognises his friend Akeley from, I think, from some snapshots that he'd sent. But Akeley's feet and ankles are, are too swollen for him to get around and his voice is reduced to a strange whisper. He can only sit in a darkened room limited by his debilitating fever and general weakness. Wilmarth will have to attend to himself as Noise has to head off for some other important business. What you're saying here then, Paul, is that Akeley mm. is a whisperer and he's sitting there in darkness. <laughs> Good Lord, it's a man! title drop! What? Hey. <laughs> Everybody drink. <laughs> now alone, apart from the unseen invalid Akeley, Wilmarth once again reflects on how quiet the farm is, with no sounds of animal life at all. The house also has a certain odd odour, although this may just be due to it being an old farmhouse. But we know that's not the case, and he certainly is oblivious to smell as well as listening <laughs> and seeing. He's completely sensory deprived. <laughs> it's quiet, Matt. Too quiet. But this is a good example of the kind of thing we can do in our games with creating a creepy atmosphere just by those sometimes fairly subtle things that are wrong, that feel wrong, like there not being the sounds of any animal life. That's certainly one I've used myself a great many times because mm. it's one of these things that you don't really notice if you're out and about in the woods or the wilderness just the sounds of insects and birds and stuff like that. It's just so much part of the fabric of ordinary life that you don't notice it at all while it's happening. But when it stops, you do. I grew up listening to the sound of the motorway being about less than a mile from the house. And the only mm. time we ever noticed it was when there was no traffic or when the, when the motorway had been closed. Mm. It's very much that absence. You suddenly go, oh, hang on, what's different here? And it does take a little while to suddenly realise what that difference is. You get habituated to noise like that, no end. When I was a kid, Hong Kong was like one big building site. You'd get the sound of construction going on until the, the evening hours, the night hours. And there would be the constant sound of distant pile drivers and heavy machinery of various kinds. As well as all the traffic noises and the noises of life in a big city. And... I remember when, for a couple of years, we lived in Switzerland. My father got a job in Geneva, and we moved from Hong Kong and lived in the Swiss countryside for two years before moving back to Hong Kong. And we lived in this old house that was in the middle of a vineyard away from the nearest village, and the nearest village was tiny, and there was literally nothing but vineyards for miles around. And... I just could not sleep. Just the quiet freaked me the hell out. And now on to chapter seven. Now in the house, Wilmarth peeks into Akeley's room, where the queer odour is even stronger. 
For a moment, the closed blinds allowed me to see very little, but then a kind of apologetic hacking or whispering sound drew my attention to the great easy chair in the farther, darker corner of the room. Within its shadowy depths, I saw a white blur of a man's face and hands, and in a moment, I had crossed to greet the figure who had tried to speak. Dim though the light was, I perceived that this was indeed my host. Wilmarth considers that Akeley must be very ill indeed because of his strained, rigid, immobile expression and unwinking, glassy stare. Akeley greets him in a whispered voice, made all the more difficult to follow since the grey moustache conceals all movements of his lips. Something about the timbre of the voice unnerves Wilmarth. Once Wilmarth has settled in, Akeley promises a conversation that will open up gulfs of time and space and knowledge beyond anything within the conception of human science and philosophy. So I'm kind of picturing Akeley as a stoner at this stage. So he's invited Wilmarth around to his place and he's promising this mind-blowing conversation. They're going to be sitting there eating hash cakes all night, aren't they? Just exploring mentally the intricacies of space-time and just having all these mind-blowing thoughts. Don't bogart that cylinder. (laughs) Uh, I can't remember his name for the life of me. But the fellow who played one of the doctors in in the thing, the one that normally he has this big bushy moustache. Wilfred Brimley. That's him. Yeah, I just had that impression of him with that moustache that <laughs> yeah. kind of covers his mouth. And he's like, "Look, man, time and space are mutable, right? <laughs> and pretty soon, my first trip is going to be to Yugoth, and the nearest world fully peopled by beings." Wow. Wow. <laughs> Uh, I am not going to maintain that voice for the next week. <laughs> Can you dig it? But Akeley continues. There are mighty cities on Yagoth, great tiers of terraced towers built of black stone like the specimen I tried to send to you. The sun shines there no brighter than a star, but the beings need no light. They have other subtler senses, and put no windows in their great houses and temples. Light even hurts and hampers and confuses them, for it does not exist at all in the black cosmos outside time and space where they come from originally. To visit Yagoth would drive any weak man mad. Yet I am going there. You know I love the sound of that place already. No light to fade my books. No need for windows so I can get more wall space. This is an amazing place. (laughs) Yeah, but there's no light to read your books, Matt. No, but they don't need them. Their eyes have grown accustomed to it. Where we're going, we won't need light. (laughs) None of this is as scary as it sounds, Akeley promises. He also quickly name-checks various mythos entities and locations the Migo have encountered, as you do. Boy, do they name-check them. (laughs) They sure do. (laughs) They they really do. Going back for a moment, though, to this idea of light hurting the Mego, I guess we've sort of seen this a little bit in that they've only attacked at night, and spoiler alert, this room is pretty dim as well, isn't it? But between the fact that we've been told that they also have trouble walking on the Earth, that they're at home in the air, but they seem to find something about terrestrial gravity, maybe, or just being on this Earth to be difficult to deal with. They're really not physically very imposing or scary creatures, are they? Well, they put all their points into int and pal, didn't they, rather than strength, size, dex, (laughs) none of those useful stats. It does occur to me that it doesn't say too much about them being hurt by light. Isn't it the Shan that are hurt by light? Yes. It specifically says here, light even hurts and hampers and confuses them. But the thing is, much like the Shan, if you're travelling between planets, you are exposed to the light of the sun. You're not flying around in darkness, are well, you? Maybe it's just this sun that they don't like. Maybe it's the light from other stars isn't a problem. Maybe there's something different about ours. But there's a huge difference between being on the Earth and, say, even being out in Pluto. Sure, they're all in the same solar system. Oh, yeah, but they've got to fly through space to get here, is my point. 
but space is largely empty. It's not like it's crammed full of stars. The stars are very, very far apart. The nearest star from here is four light years away. Yeah, no, no. Sorry, I'm perhaps not making my point. When you're out at Pluto, the sun is, I, I look this up, it's about a thousandth of the power that it is on Earth, right, that you, mm. you would, would perceive. If you're hurt by light and you fly through space, the closer you get to Earth, the bigger the sun gets. And as you're getting anywhere near Earth, the sun is going to be just as strong as it is when oh, you're on Earth. Right, yeah. And there's going to be no shade at all. You're totally exposed to it, unless the, the sun is eclipsed by the Earth. I'm not sure it would be, but until you get really close. Or other planets. Well, until you get really close, that's not going to work. Well, you've got Saturn, you've got Jupiter, you've got Neptune. They're all fairly large planets in comparison. They would blot out the sun at least until you got to the asteroid belt. They very rarely line up yeah. so that if you were using them as big cosmic parasols, you'd be spending so much time travelling between the planets in their yeah. orbits that it would be far less painful just for you to make a beeline or a MIGO line for Earth. So I like the idea of it taking a thousand years to get them as they play interstellar hopscotch. I think maybe they just shut their eyes for a while. <laughs> Lights are a bit bright. Maybe they get to wear shades. Yeah. Who knows? Let's not get too hung up on this. Head reeling and flesh crawling from all this forbidden knowledge, Wilmarth stumbles off to his bedroom to have lunch. When he offers to share it with Akeley, his host explains that he is limited to a liquid diet of malted milk, like some kind of vegan Dracula. Now there's a horrible, horrible image. What, a vegan Dracula that drinks milk? <laughs> I mean, I kind of get what you're saying, but yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, vegetarian. Anyway, that afternoon, the two men have a conversation filled with eldritch secrets Wilmarth is unwilling to relate. Even now, I absolutely refuse to believe what he implied about the constitution of ultimate infinity, the juxtaposition of dimensions, and the frightful position of our known cosmos of space and time in the unending chain of linked cosmos atoms which make up the immediate supercosmos of curves, angles, and material and semi-material electronic organisation. That's a good tongue twister, even for Lovecraft. <laughs> I guess he's been very influenced by a lot of the cosmology that was going on around at the time. He was writing this, I'm trying to think when it would have corresponded with... Einstein certainly would have put out his theory of special relativity at the stage. I can't remember whether he'd written his, his theory of general relativity. But it's certainly sort of... His references to space-time and it all being a continuum and so on is very much taken out of Einstein's work. Hmm. Akeley shares only the foulest secrets about the nature of the dolls, the hounds of Tindalos, the legend of Yig, father of serpents, and the monstrous nuclear chaos beyond angled space which the Necronomicon had mercifully cloaked under the name of Azathoth. Mm, so this is part of his list of names. So we do get a bit of information, a little bit of context about each one. And all this Wilmarth finds very shocking to have such secrets explained with stark, morbid hatefulness. Learning of the truth behind the black stone, Wilmarth is relieved that it was lost in transit. Yeah, this was the stone that was mislaid on its way to Wilmarth in an earlier chapter. And also a stone that seems to have been mined from Yagoth itself. Hmm. So Wilmarth here is talking about how shocking it was to have all these mythos secrets, these secrets of the nature of space-time, of these entities from beyond space-time, of these alien intelligences that dominate the cosmos or live on the Earth. And he talks about how shocking it is to have it all explained so plainly. I, I found myself wondering about that one because I guess if we think of it in terms of horror fiction or horror gaming or whatever, spelling stuff like that out simply and plainly is generally the very antithesis of frightening. But maybe if you're talking about the cosmic truths of the cosmos, cosmic truths of the cosmos, there's a tautology, mm -hmm. then... It is more disturbing, but I don't know. I keep thinking of the number of times in games, you know, particularly Call of Cthulhu, where players want to know in exhaustive detail what something means, go mm. to every aspect of it and so on. And 
generally I find nothing sucks the horror out of a game faster than over-explaining things. Oh, no, the one reaction you could have to that is if you meet this NPC that spouts off X, Y, and Z about other hitherto unconnected parts of the mythos, part of me would go, crap, he's got all that information. What the hell kind of mythos score, or rather, lack of sanity has this man <laughs> got? Ah! Yes. Yeah, but that's metagaming. It's, it's not the content of what he's saying itself. No, you could just rattle off random incoherent names and not have a clue. But if you know how the mechanics of the game work, then there might be that reaction to it. But Wilmoth is talking explicitly about how troubling it is to have all this stuff explained simply and plainly. But, I mean, in the text, we don't get that much explanation. I mean, mm. we get the recounting from Wilmoth that he has. This is just the headlines, if you like. Oh, exactly. So we don't really know the details that Wilmarth is exposed to, but also, you know, he, he's in a state where this is all very credible because he's kind of seen evidence of it now. Yeah, exactly. And because Lovecraft as a horror writer knows that spelling these things out as plainly as Wilmarth says he's had them spelt out to him would be utterly deflating in the story. As night falls, Wilmarth asks permission to light a lantern. This makes his host's strained, immobile face and listless hands look damnably abnormal and corpse-like. This Akeley fellow looks pretty healthy for his age. Then Akeley gets to the most unsettling part of the conversation, his impending trip to Yogoth, and Wilmarth's own possible participation in it. Seeing Wilmarth's alarm, Akeley tries to put him at his ease, explaining that complete human bodies do not make the trip because... The outer ones have found a way to convey human brains without their concomitant physical structure. So that's fine, isn't it? Yeah, don't worry about your body. We'll just take your brain. Yeah, you don't need your body. You can leave that behind. It just gets in the way, man. Just yeah. gets in the way. There's one way to get around the excess baggage weight <laughs> charges. Oh, yeah, the Miko should have sold this as the ultimate diet plan, shouldn't mm. they? God, yeah. The bare, compact cerebral matter was then immersed in an occasionally replenished fluid within an ether-tight cylinder of a metal mined in Yogoth, certain electrodes reaching through and connecting at will with elaborate instruments capable of duplicating the three vital faculties of sight, hearing and speech. For the winged fungus beings to carry the brain cylinders intact through space was an easy matter. Hmm. So, yes, you are now at luggage. <laughs> well, it saves having to do all that pesky exercise. So, Think of all the free time you get during the day. Fantastic. Now, once at their destination, these brain cylinders can be hooked up to instruments that will offer the occupants a full sensory and articulate life. This is as simple as carrying a phonograph record about and playing it wherever a phonograph of the corresponding make exists. How could Wilmarth be afraid of that? Just plug yourself in and you're away. There was a Roald Dahl story I remember reading a great many years ago. I think it was called William and Mary. Have either of you encountered that? And my memories of it are so vague. I mean, this is like going back 40 years. It's about kind of an old married couple and the man has had some hideous accident and is now a brain in a jar and his wife basically goes along to speak to him and because of the recriminations and the trouble that their marriage was in already the discussions between them are all sorts of petty point scoring and bickering anyway but she spends basically the entire time taunting him over the lack of physical sensations that he now feels for example he's really craving a cigarette so she spends all her time smoking and just blowing smoke in towards the jar knowing that you know, he can sort of perceive the clouds of smoke but obviously can't get his nicotine fix out of it and just that sort of sensory deprivation aspect of it of being a brain in a jar i remember that really terrifying me when i read that story mm. and yeah just Seeing how casually it's being approached here by Akeley is really quite chilling. Oh, yeah, definitely. There's one of the issues, I think it's of from the Boom Comics line of Fall of Cthulhu. The storyline in that is pretty crazy from what I remember anyway. But there's one of the characters who gets turned into a, the eponymous brain in a jar. 
And I think he, he does something that basically pisses off Neartholotep at some point. And the punishment that is given to him is that rather than leaving in the basement with the lights off so that he's completely unaware of his surroundings, is they plug in the visual sensors and then put him face to face with a mirror so that he can basically see his own brain floating in this jar. Mm. And it just sends him completely and utterly mad. Mm. Mm. It's a wonderful thing. The Mego are doing a great sales pitch on selling their brain <laughs> jar flights through space. And so at this point, Akeley uses one of his suspiciously inflexible hands to point at a row of a dozen canisters on a shelf that somehow Wilmoth hasn't noticed until now. You see, there are four different sorts of beings preserved in those cylinders up there. Three humans, six fungoid beings who can't navigate space corporeally, two beings from Neptune. So that reference to the beings from Neptune... I don't remember encountering those anywhere else or having any idea what they are. Is that something you've ever come across in any of the Call of Cthulhu material, either of you? No, the closest I can think of is the door to Saturn or the cats from Saturn. I can't think of any other life being described further out in the system until you get to Yogo. I was just looking up where you mentioned, Scott, that the hand pointed. And yeah, indeed, the hand does point. It's notable mm. that the hands do move here, I think, Yeah, for later reference. Then I saw the hand point to a much nearer corner where there were some intricate instruments. But no, I've not come across. But he mentions Neptune a number of times in this story. He also mentions that Yogoth is the nearest fully peopled planet. But these beings are from Neptune. Well, I think when he was talking about it being the nearest fully peopled planet, he meant by the Mego. Mm, perhaps so. Or that maybe they're not what would be considered like colonising life. Maybe it's not civilised or intelligent life. Hmm. Yet it's still interesting enough that the Migo are going around extracting their brains, putting them in cylinders, and then carrying them around between planets. Yeah. I guess they must have something interesting about them. I mean, this reminds me a little of the uh, Shadow Out of Time, where the narrator goes mm. back and meets other beings from other periods in time, a bit like here, where he's meeting other beings mm. from other planets. Kind of a parallel of that, which is a pretty cool idea to meet other beings like yourself that have been collected up in this way not that you'll remember it but hey so Akeley asks Wilmarth to take down cylinder b67 and not pay any attention to the other cylinders particularly not the one the new one the shiny one with Akeley's name on it no don't don't even bother looking at that one that one's not important at all Akeley walks Wilmarth through the connecting the cylinder up to an external device like someone in IT supports explaining how to set up a printer or a monitor or something it's just you know you plug these bits in there yeah that's right have you turned it on and off again have you updated the brain drivers yes <laughs> all of this hard work pays off when the cylinder begins to talk the voice explains that it is a human being, just like Wilmarth, although its body is stored safely under a nearby hill. You don't need to know which hill, it's all alright, it's nothing to worry about, pay no attention to that detail. About six foot under somewhere. The resident explains that he met the Migo while in the Himalayas, and has helped them ever since. In return, his new friends have flown him all over the cosmos and even beyond. Yeah, I thought there was an interesting reference to the Himalayas, because we get the, mm. the connection with the abominable snowman of the himalayas in an earlier chapter so this is kind of reinforcing that connection with that myth and the migo but also this guy that's been buried or not buried his body is like a mile and a half away under a hill so yeah. you know we've got this thing of akeley being assaulted by the migo and their human servants so this is happening to other people around here as well i mean because mm. we've got the servant that was killed i forget his name so there are there are numerous humans around here that are either had their brains put in jars or who have been dominated somehow by the migo so we're seeing akeley be assaulted by this but it's obviously going on in quite a few places round about here and mm. quite a number of individuals and particularly also noise who comes from quite a way away doesn't he it's implied that he comes from uh, what the plates on his car boston boston yeah so you know not just these wild hills but also urban areas as well they've got to reach into but what they fail to take into account none of those other people had any dogs that's how ah. they've flown under the radar have been able to be picked off by the Migo one by one up until now. The brain in the cylinder gives Wilmarth a sales pitch, offering him the chance to join Akeley, Noise, and others on their trip to Yogoth. 
All he has to do is sign on the dotted line. All he has to do is submit to a simple bodydectomy. Yes, you don't need that physical form anymore. Just trust <laughs> us, extract your brain, put it in a jar and come fly with us. We've talked about how horrifying this is. But on the other hand, this is a chance to look at the mysteries beyond space and time to even leave the physical constraints of our universe to potentially become immortal, to have experiences that no person on Earth will ever have. Would any of us ever be tempted by such a thing? Sign me up now. Give me the pen. (laughs) (laughs) I think if if I was elderly or you know suffering from Mm. some sort of disease or something then you know this this would be something that would have more appeal than it does to me right now certainly long ago in my o level or gcse as they are now in english language i wrote an essay about how i'd like the aliens to come down and take me away (laughs) which greatly amused everybody when i came out the exam and told them what i'd written yeah i I didn't figure on them just taking my brain though (laughs) Yeah, that's the stumbling block. The idea of going off and seeing all these new wonders, that is really quite exciting. But I know that Akeley talks a number of times about how what the Migo do is beyond surgery, that it's so simple, that it's painless, that it's not barbaric like cutting people up with knives, but still just that idea of... (laughs) (laughs) having my brain ripped out and then just floating around in a jar. Well, not just that, but the being at the mercy of Mm. just these entities who can sort of switch off your senses and just leave you there in darkness for eternity. I mean, that seems quite hellish. I don't know, I'll take that over the dental bills I have all the time, all the problems you got (laughs) with uh, creaking legs, clicking knees having to do exercise, getting your hair cut, all the repetitive upkeep that the body has to go through. No, fuck that. Give me the jar. I thought you didn't like body horror, Matt. You've just explained exactly what the appeal of body horror is. That's not horror, that's bliss. No, all the stuff about the problems of having a body, that's what body horror is about. The voice from the cylinder also casually drops into conversation that noise was the man Wilmarth had heard on the recording made in the woods. There you go. He finally made his idea roll to remember it. Well, no, he didn't. He was told. Hmm. He finally puts two and two together, because knowing Wilmarth, he could probably say that, and he'd probably go, what? And then it wouldn't be until ten minutes later that he'd finally realise. But he then invites Wilmarth to put him back into standby mode. So who the hell is Noyce? We know he has this cultured voice. He's turned up on the recordings that Akeley made in the woods. He is apparently from Boston. But is he exactly what he seems? I mean, we know Nialathotep is involved with this somehow, that the Migo worship him and that he seems to take some kind of role in their existence. I did wonder, I mean, Noyce's name begins with an N... (laughs) that's a pretty weak evidence (laughs) okay yeah i i know that's that's a tenuous bit but i did find myself wondering whether he is just this human cultist from boston or whether he is something else whether he might be an avatar of neolithic because apart from anything else you know the miko just seem to be casually working with him they don't seem to treat him as a an instrument the way they did you know their man that attacked Akeley before well do we know that i mean is he any different to the other human servants i didn't really view him any differently the only thing that sets him apart is that he's got these plates from boston he's going to be flying with them to yogoth but so are some of the other people in cylinders you know some of the other brains in cylinders but if you think back to the recording mm. that they right. made in the woods, he seemed to be leading the ceremony. Sure. He's just kind of cultist plus. He's on the management level rather than the frontline grunt of your average cultist. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. That's kind of how I took it, yeah. I don't know. It seems it seems like the Miko have got an awful lot of respect for someone who is fundamentally just human then. Mm. But yeah, I mean, I think that's something you can read in. I don't see a great deal of evidence of that of him being on Arthotep I, th- I think it's curious how they use their human servants there's, there's no doubt that they have these human servants that seem to be more than just pawns they seem to worship with them and 
Yeah, that's kind of intriguing. There's the question of what their human servants are and how they're treated by the Migo. But but also, you know, we know in this text here that they're, they are going to take or have taken Akeley's brain out. So, you know, why do that? You know, is, if it's just collecting yeah. exhibits in a zoo, well, it doesn't seem like that to me. It does seem like they're, you know, they're taking beings from other planets, taking their brains for whatever reason. Yeah. So they are treating them... Not necessarily benevolently, but certainly taking some care of them. Well, yeah, it could be that they're taking them off because they think they'll be interesting to study later, mm. that they seem to be intellectually, even scientific beings. Yeah. So the idea of conversing with these entities, these intelligent entities from a completely different species, culture, planet, might be interesting to them. I did also wonder whether not that it's ever mentioned in the story but whether they might be harvesting all these human brains simply because they're you know, like fleshy computers that they can use to then power or operate machinery or do other things back on yogurt i mean if you've got all this mining equipment that mm. uh, needs to dig out the ore that you require for your various experiments why bother operating it manually when you can plug a brain case cylinder in and say right yeah get on with it yeah yeah computer powered by brain cases i'm sure i've heard that idea somewhere before <laughs> so old wilmarth physically and emotionally exhausted heads off to bed he's badly shaken by everything that has happened but mostly he cannot shake off the disquiet about his host his illness ought to have excited my pity but instead it gave me a kind of shudder he was so rigid and inert and corpse-like, and that incessant whispering was so hateful and unhuman. Lying awake in the oppressive silence of the farm, his scientific zeal having vanished amidst fear and loathing, Wilmarth vows to go home the following morning. Is this a glimmer of self-preservation I see before me? <laughs> <laughs> well, this also struck me as being another point where i can see it playing out very differently in a game because wilmarth has been driven to this remote farmhouse quite a long drive from the train station he's in the middle of nowhere surrounded by woods so it is actually fairly impractical by him stealing a car which yeah, spoiler alert he does later but it's fairly impractical for him just to stroll out and leave the farm mm. particularly mm. in the middle of the night yeah but I can think of so many examples of playing games where players have just decided, okay, sod this, you know, I'm going to run out in the woods and keep going until I find civilization. And again, this is another thing that I don't think anyone in real life, well, unless they were particularly terrified or in a dissociated state, would really do because going out in the cold and the dark in woods you don't know when you're miles from civilization is probably suicide and also we've had quite a lot of implication of what is out there in mm. those hills and woods so that's probably not a wise thing to do right now but also in games you know numerous scenarios i've read which say you know this happens in the evening and then the next morning when the investigators get up <laughs> yes there is that thing of when you write in a scenario to sort of think okay well they've done that that day what would they do the next and it's like well in this situation, I think most players would say, okay, well, you'd say, what are you doing now? Thinking maybe they'll go to bed. Well, no, they'll stay up and they'll creep around the house. They'll investigate further. They'll investigate the other rooms and sneak downstairs when they think everybody else is asleep. You know, things like that, that in a game, it tends to be very compressed time-wise, doesn't it? Because yeah. people just keep acting, which is fair enough. Investigators never need to sleep, go to the toilet, eat no <laughs> exactly yeah it is that whole thing of playing a character that is completely divorced from physical sensations like you're a brain in a jar you are not having to put up with the depredations of having a body so you don't get tired you don't get cold you don't get hurt and so you can just carry on as if none of these things actually matter again you're really selling it me ironically if it were a dnd game you would want to stop for a long rest <laughs> to recover your hit points <laughs> I got my daughter Emily to read the story just to see what she made of it. And she picked up on a couple of things. One was the reference that I think twice to the bust of Milton on um, mm. Akeley's mantelpiece. 
there's obviously a purposeful reference by Lovecraft to Milton there, Paradise Lost and so mm. on. I don't know if we read anything into that, but or whether just Lovecraft was a fan of that. Yeah, I'm trying to think of any parallels between Paradise Lost and this story, and I'm struggling. Hmm. Or maybe Milton as a historical figure rather than his works. Because mm-hmm. if I remember right, wasn't he going blind or virtually blind when he wrote Paradise Lost? Oh, right. He had to dictate a lot of it. Maybe. Ah, okay. I wasn't aware of that. Pretty sure that was the case. Now I remember doing Paradise Lost as part of my degree. It's actually one that rather than uh, Take Me Away Aliens, that was my essay when I did my last exam. <laughs> But yes, anyway, this brings us to the end of chapter seven. We are now closing in on the end of the story. So next episode, we shall wrap things up with a look at chapter eight and maybe a few other things, but primarily chapter eight. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash good friends of Jackson Elias. Thank you for listening. Well, once again, we have people to thank. Thank you for a start to you for listening to the podcast. Thank you very much to anyone who has ever backed us at any stage. And we have a number of new backers to thank explicitly by name. Yes, first off, a big thanks to a new backer named Thrain. Possibly father of Thorin Oakenshield. I don't know, it doesn't say. But uh, yes, <laughs> big thanks to Thrain. And also our thanks go out to Adam S. And thank you very much to Dennis Thomas. And also, thank you to, and, and he writes this, this isn't my judgment on him, but this is his name of choice, the Dave of Daves. <laughs> if any other Daves wish to contest that, you are welcome. The Dave. The one and only. Challenge him in a Dave off. Yep. And also, our thanks go out to, very curiously named here, Ash the Inflammable. You see, I can't have Inflammable next to my name at all, because in every game I always end up on fire. <laughs> yeah, I'm intrigued by that one, because if I think of all the substances that are normally inflammable, Ash doesn't really top the list. That is a nice paradox. I like that. Because you know, Matt, that flammable and inflammable mean the same thing. One of those that why why the hell I have two words to say the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess that wraps it up. You know, all this talk of like these brains in jars and talking to them. And then there was some uh, reference to the Wurzels a while back. It's kind of made <laughs> me think, could you do some kind of Wurzel gummage? Whisper in darkness mashup. The Wurzel in darkness. You know, it's like putting my wrong head on today. You know, you're plugging in the wrong brain cylinder. You're too young to remember Wurzel Gamage, aren't you? Not John Pertwee. Scott, you're talking to Matt here. Matt, fan of like 50s Quatermass, uh, <laughs> the Stone Tapes, pretty much every TV show that was made before he was even born. <laughs> 70s Doctor Who, 60s Doctor Who. Yeah, damn straight. The golden age of TV, much better than the shit they put on now. <laughs> also, like Lovecraft was pretty um, anti-modernist. Matt will fall into step with that pretty readily, oh, I think. Oh, yeah. <laughs> For those of us who are old enough to remember the 70s, they were shit. <laughs> Not like today! <laughs> today is shit in different ways. Okay, well, folks, it's all shit. And until next time, it's a good night from me. It's a cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. <laughs> Well, you've got a brand new uh, brain cylinder and you're flying me through space. <laughs>